You're listening to the Bible Nerd Podcast, a weekly show where we're exploring the world of the Bible, helping you fall more in love with Jesus, and building a thoughtful defense for the Christian worldview. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. Welcome to the show. Well, hello there. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Bible Nerd Podcast. I have a question for you. Does the point of a passage make the details of a passage unnecessary? Okay, if you've got a a point that's being made by a passage, especially a theological point, and everybody agrees. It's like, yep, this is what this passage is really intending to teach. Do the details within that actually matter, or are they inconsequential? That's what I want to talk to you about within uh, this week's episode and sort of answer this question and, and, and deal with it, because it's a route that a lot of people take who want to be able to understand the Bible as authoritative when it comes to things like theology, like spiritual beings, like understanding God's uh, world as it relates to the overarching story of redemption, et cetera. But then uh, on the other hand, they want to be able to say that, well, maybe the Bible doesn't necessarily have to get all the details right in that message. For example, maybe it could be wrong about um, the the timing or placement of historical events, or um, you know, maybe it could make a claim that has implications for modern science, right? Um, and, and yet, we know from modern science that the the claim being made would be would be incorrect. And so, you know, we we could maybe excuse those ancient people for for not having the scientific knowledge that we have, and so maybe there was actually error that was recorded in the Bible in that way. But then uh, the Bible um, sort of transmitted actual truth through that error. And uh, again, this that's a little bit different question, which I answered recently on the Substack, by the way. You can go to biblenerdsociety.substack.com. And I just put a post out there that said, must the Bible be inerrant in order for it to be truthful and authoritative? And if you haven't got a chance to check that out yet, uh, please do, because it answers the question a little bit different way. But but this, I want to specifically zoom in on the issue of whether a a, a theological point, a, a spiritual truth that's being taught in a passage um, can be divorced from any other kind of truth that's being taught in that passage, from the actual specifics of, of the details around the passage in question. So that's sort of the route that I want to go, and um, hopefully that you will find this uh, interesting and an extra, you know, an exercise that would be helpful for you uh, to be able to think through as you're studying the Bible. So first, I, I want to kind of deal with this by asking the question: like, what is what is really the purpose of the Bible? Okay, what is the purpose of the Bible? Did, um, you know, it, what, what's the purpose of of the Bible for God to communicate with humanity? Was it to communicate truthfully to humanity? Like, like, what is the Bible actually uh, for? Okay. There was a old quote. Who said it? Uh, I think it was, I think it was Galileo. Please don't, you know, don't quote me here. I, I could be getting this wrong, but but I think it was Galileo who said, um, you know, the the Bible is for the purpose. It might have been Augustine. I don't know. I, I can't remember who. So I, I took a, a brief break to look it up there, and uh, in fact, it it was uh, Galileo. So I got it right the first time. Uh, who said that? Yeah, the the Bible shows the way to go to heaven, not the way the heavens go, and. What what's curious about that? Okay, what's what what makes this a question worth exploring is that there are places in the Bible where it d- 
does seem to say something about how the heavens go. And so what does a faithful Christian um, do with, with that? You know, does he reinterpret his understanding of how the heavens go or does he reinterpret his understanding of, of the Bible? And so I do think it starts with this question, you know, what is the purpose of the Bible? What, how did God mean to communicate? And so if I were to maybe, you know, rethink Galileo's statement here a little bit, I would say that the, the primary purpose of the Bible is to show the way to heaven. But sometimes the Bible talks about the way the heavens go, okay? And uh, it I don't see any way to, it, in a way that's faithful to Scripture, circumvent that, okay? Uh, because again, let's, let's take an event like the flood, okay? The, the flood is something that as a creationist, you know, we, we creationists talk, talk about this a lot. And um, it, it's unfortunate because of the nature of the event. Obviously, it, it's horrible that a, a flood that destroyed the entire planet, you know, had to take place. But the Bible says that it did take place. And that can't just be ignored. Okay, it, that, that can't just be passed over. Okay, if the Bible said there was a, a, a global flood, the nature of which that would literally destroy every living thing on the planet, then that is going to have some implications for the physical world. Now, sure enough, that flood, that flood has spiritual truth all throughout it. Okay. And in fact, the spiritual truths of the flood. Um, are mentioned later on in the Bible. I mean, Jesus appeals to the flood. Other biblical writers appeal to the flood of Noah. And so the question we must ask is, you know, in that flood, are, are there appeals to it uh, merely for the purpose of teaching a, a lesson? Is it, it would, you know, is it, is it sort of like uh, referring to one of Aesop's fables or, or something like the tortoise and the hair. Um, and it, it, it doesn't seem to be that way. In fact, in um, 1 Peter chapter, uh, is, is it 1 Peter 3? I think it's 1 Peter chapter 3. You know, we have, we have this pretty, you know, um, clear description about the fact that people who deny the judgment that is to come do so on the basis that they, they deny that the world was created and they deny the event of the flood. In other words, they deny that God created, they deny that God judged that first time, and, and so therefore they deny that God will judge this next time um, in, the, in the coming judgment. Um, but it gets worse than that because that, now that is a spiritual appeal. And it's not only a spiritual appeal, it also has elements of real physicality to it. In other words, if we expect if we expect this future judgment to be real, then it's necessary that both the creation and the flood were real. And another reason I say that it gets even even worse is because Jesus himself in the book of Matthew compares the uh, the event of the flood as a worldwide event to another worldwide event, which is, again, the, um, the second coming of Christ. And so it, it's kind of like there are, are references all throughout Scripture that, yeah, of, of course— you know, we're appealing to a, a an event with 
spiritual and theological significance, but it's the historicity of, of that event is what it, it provides the foundation and the and the basis for that theological and uh, spiritual uh, truth. So it'd be it'd be you know it'd be real easy to say, oh well, you know Genesis one for example is is to teach us that God alone is the creator. Well, that's true, but like you like that couldn't be described in a way that didn't get very specific about what was created in what order on what day very specific about how long the days were like and, and even that is something that as as time goes on that's becoming less and less controversial in hebrew uh, scholarship in fact like a while ago even when i first got into apologetics the most common way to deal with that was just to say that the days were able to be defined differently as an epoch or something like that well you know fast forward about seven years or so and now most scholars are agreed, uh, Hebrew scholars are agreed that, yeah, um, this event, you know, Genesis 1 is talking about a seven-day framework for creation, like, no denying that. Um, it's just that they don't believe it, right? It's just, it's just, there's some other explanation for it. it it's, it was meant to be patterned after a week for that, you know, for, for its own, in other words, the, the days of creation were patterned after the week instead of the week being patterned after the days of creation. It's, it's just an analogy. It's got a poetical flavor to it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so that leads to the question then, okay, well, like, number one, of course, why are the details there, right? Is, is there, would, have, would there have been a way to say the same things without appealing to very specific details? And uh, I think the answer to that is yes, although we're going to talk about that a little bit more um, in a minute when we get to theological polemic, okay? I'm gonna, I do want to talk about polemics a little bit because that could affect um, what we're talking about. But if we're just asking the question, does God care about the details? You know, in, in general, do, do the details of the words of Scripture matter to God? All right, I want to give you a, a few verses that I think prove that the answer to that question is yes, that God really does care uh, about the details, not, not just the, the primary things. And, and, of course, there are examples in Scripture where, um, Again, the details matter less, but they're very specifically stated. So an example is, you know, the Apostle Paul was dealing with people who were converting to Christianity out of Judaism. And of course, you know, Judaism had some very, very strict um, rules. And the question in the early church was, well, to what degree should we follow those rules? And, you know, of course, you can look up like in Romans 14, where Paul dealt with questions like this and, and talking about, you know, basically that uh, for some Christians, it was like, yeah, like. In other words, the message was keep the main thing the main thing, okay? Be Christians in community, agreeing on the fundamental, you know, tenet of the faith, which is that Jesus Christ died and rose again the third day, and um, and and you know died for the sins of, of of the world. But then realize that you know if you in your mind believe that you should uh, you know adhere to certain religious days. Um, or that you can, or you know, eat meat offered to idols and and whatever. Then then sure, do that. Let everyone be persuaded in his own mind. But I don't think that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. I think that's different. That has more to do with the idea of Christian liberty. What we're talking about here is the details of the words of God. Do those details matter, or is it just about the theological point of the passage, so to speak? And I think those are two different things. So here's a couple of verses: Matthew four four says this, he answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man must not live by bread alone, but on every word 
that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, I mean, it, it seems simple enough to me. Like, we, we rely on every word of God. Um, yeah, I mean, to the extent that we can know what those words are, in other words, we have the Bible, then, yeah, we live on those words. Now, it doesn't make distinctions between the different uh, kinds of words, but obviously, like, yeah, the words of God, what we have in our hand as the Bible, like, how, like, how are we supposed to slice and dice that in such a way that we get to decide which words we want to follow and which words we don't. And by the way, you know, you you, you could say, oh, well, Steve, you're just making a slippery slope argument. You know, I'm really not <laughs> um, because we've seen this happen. Okay. And, and I, this is one area, let, let me just, uh, let me just rabbit trail uh, and rant for, for just a minute here. This is, this is one area that, um, that I really, really, really agree with people that I sometimes disagree with um, in, in their uh, methods. Uh, for example, Ken Ham. Okay, Ken Ham, I think, is a fantastic guy who loves the Lord um, and, and means well. But I'll just be honest: there are some um, some things that he says, mostly the way that he says them, that I I would not do. I, I just don't feel like it is, frankly, the right way to handle many situations. But um, I do think they're right when when they say that a denial of the truth of God's creation that he made the male and female, et cetera, et cetera. Like when you get to denying the foundation of creation, uh, you do sort of fall into this slope of, of denying many other things. And it's like, you know, years ago, we were talking about the slippery slope of, of, of gay marriage. And they said, well, that's not a slippery slope. It's not going to happen, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, look at where we are today in the uh, identification, you know, gender identity issues and, and all of that. So it, it, it does, your starting point does matter, okay? Like, full stop. The starting point that you take on foundational doctrinal elements of Genesis does very much so uh, matter. So, yeah, every word that comes from the mouth of God is important. It should be lived on. And uh, absolutely, that is a, uh, a, a maxim for the Christian that matters. And it is dependent upon the truthfulness of the words found in Scripture. And I don't think we get to slice and dice which of those words um, we decide are uh, truthful because that leads to uh, great theological error. Okay, how about this one? Matthew twelve thirty six says, "I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak." Okay, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. What? You you mean you mean for all of those passing words, all of those passing things that they've that they've said every time they mumbled under their breath or they judged somebody who it wasn't their time or their right, frankly, to judge. Um, they're going to be held accountable for that. Now, let me ask you, do you think God would hold you accountable for your words and he would not be accountable for his words? I don't think that's right because that's called hypocrisy and we're told by Jesus not to judge in a hypocritical way. Okay? so. Um, if, if God cares that much about our words, I, I believe that he cares as much to communicate his word truthfully and accurately as well. That seems to make sense. How about Romans 3, 1 and 2? It says, so what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. They were entrusted with the very words of God. These people were given, the Jews were given the words of God to carry on. They matter. All of the words of God matter, and there is no suggestion anywhere in Scripture that we can slice and dice which of those words we get 
to um, live by. And then how about this one? Proverbs 3, um, excuse me, Proverbs uh, 30, 5, and 6. Every word of God is pure. Listen to this. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Don't add to his words or he will rebuke you and you will be proved a liar. How about this one? This is, uh, I think, Psalms 12, 3. I didn't write it down, but I think it's what it is. And it says, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in an earthen furnace, purified seven times. So what's interesting about this is those words there, the, the word for, for pure, in, in these uh, contexts, it was like, the word means flawless, okay? The word has the meaning of flawless. One word has more to do with like purified in the fire. Um, the other one has to do, it's the same word. Uh, it starts with a T, but I forget the actual word, uh, how, how to say it. Um, but it is the same word that is used to speak of the purity of the of, of, of the animals that were clean to be sacrificed to be to be fit for um, God's presence. Basically, if you, if you understand the idea of cosmic geography, um, you understand that there is uh, um, cleanliness uh, and and purity associated with being able to enter the holy land, the holy. Um, area of, of God, okay? And the same word that is uh, used here to describe the words of God, specifically it says every word of God, every word of God is pure. It, it, it falls into that same uh, description and definition. So I guess I just, you know, I, I just ask you, like, what can that mean other than the fact that every word matters, that the details matter? Um, why are the details there at all, if they are unnecessary. Uh, frankly, why are the details there if they are uh, secondary? Uh, I mean, again, like I said, I know I know people can disagree on things, and that's that's like totally fine. But at the end of the day, the words matter. The words matter. So, uh, you know, around here we like to talk about creation quite a bit. We've already talked about it a little bit. Let me just use that sort of as a case study, um, specifically like Genesis one to talk about. Uh, you know, a way of thinking about this. So what matters when it comes to creation? Well, does it matter that God created? Yes, sure, it absolutely does. Um, theological polemic, what about this? So this is the idea that the biblical writers, in, in the way that they wrote, were doing something very intentional. It was based in the reality, of course, but they, the way that they were writing, uh, again, based on the reality of what happened, was it was written in such a way to... Uh, polemicize against the gods of other nations. In other words, to take even some of their concepts and their ideas and show that uh, Yahweh was the creator or or that Yahweh was was the person with whom that idea should be thought of in your mind, um, not your God. And so like two examples of this in scripture, number one would be the Exodus, right? This is the obvious one that most people like see and agree on. Each of the 10 plagues was representative of one of the uh, Egyptian gods. And through the 10 plagues, Yahweh showed that he had the power over the gods of Egypt. And so that was a theological polemic. Uh, another thing you have is that um, Baal in, in, in the Bible, um, in, in ancient Canaanite um, religion, he was considered the rider of the clouds. Okay, he was the, he was the cloud rider. Well, all throughout the Old Testament, we have, um, we have Yahweh talked about, and, and specifically the angel of the Lord as well, um, that's a, that's a whole theological rabbit trail, but, but you have, you have him, uh, that association created with him being the cloud rider. Okay. And and the point is, look, it's not, it's not Baal who rides on the clouds. 
it's Yahweh, right? Um, it, it's the God of Israel, not the God of uh, of, the, of the Canaanites. So yeah, theological polemic is 100% important, but is theological polemic an invention or are the details of any given polemic an invention for the sheer purpose of telling a literary story? For example, do you really believe that the um, plagues in Egypt happened? Or was it just a literary device to show that Yahweh was greater than the other gods? Well, it is a literary device to show that Yahweh was greater, um, or th that Yahweh was greater than the other gods, but it's also baked in something real. It's based in a real event. How do we know this? Well, because, because all throughout the Old Testament, appeal is made to their time sojourning in Egypt and the the, the events that happened there and the and the Exodus from that. It's like so much of what the Israelites did was based on the knowledge of that true event happening. So was it polemical? Yes. Was it historical? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What about revelation about the nature of God? Polemical? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, against the gods of other nations. Again, I think of um, the, uh, when, when, when uh, was it Elijah who called down fire from heaven with the 400 prophets of Baal? Again, same thing there. Was it a, a polemical thing that happened in the text that we can read? Yes. Absolutely. It was revelational about the nature of God as well. Again, talking about the God who really exists and who is able to control the rain. You see, you see, um, Baal was the Canaanite storm god, okay? So, again, if you don't have this context, it, it makes it a little bit harder to understand, but um, that's why they thought that they could pray to Baal for rain and he would provide rain, okay? He was the storm god. Uh, but according to um, Elijah and the, the real god, the existing god, Yahweh was the storm god, okay? So anyway, Yahweh is the one who who not only created but controls the weather, you know, not Baal. So that was the point. So it's it's theological and it's revelational about the nature of God as well. So again, as, as we come back to something like Genesis 1, just think about this. Why, why discard the details in a passage like this? Do we learn from Genesis 1 that God is the creator? A thousand percent. Do we learn that, uh, let's say, the creation of, of, of the sun on day four, okay? Um, that was a huge theological polemic against um, the other gods of the ancient world, right? Because especially like Ra, the sun god, right? Like, or Ra, is it Ra or Ra? I don't know. Anyway, um, the sun god. It's like a lot of people worshipped uh, the, the sun as, as basically the, the, the creator, and yet um, in, in the Hebrew world and in, in the Hebrew mind, the sun was created on day four and, and barely even given a name. It wasn't even given a proper name. It was just the greater light. So is that theologically polemical? Yes. But is it just a literary invention for the purpose of showing that God is greater? That doesn't seem to make much sense to me. I would say no. I would say that the reason why it's true, the reason why it is polemical, the reason why we can say this is because that's what happened. We're not just saying it. It happened that way. God is the creator. God created the sun on day four, assigned it his job, and said, look, you're going to be the greater light. And then the lesser light over here is going to rule the night. You're going to rule the day. Lesser light's going to rule the night. And that's it. We don't even give it a proper name. We don't even give it that much dignity. Is it theologically polemic? Yes. Does it tell us something about the nature of God? Yes. Is it real? Is it historical? Did it happen? Yeah. Because why not? Oh, modern science. Oh. Oh, wait a minute. I see. So modern science is what's going to tell us 
the truth about this event. And so, so then we have to go back and, and, and take the text differently. We have to look at the text differently to now align us with modern science. See, that's, that's, that's eisegesis. That's reading into the text based on something about our modern scientific worldview. And, you know, it's just so interesting to me. People talk about avoiding that. I mean, again, I'm, I'm trying to be charitable here. You know, I follow lots of uh, theologians who would say, yeah, like, I'm really just trying to take the text on its own terms. But it sure doesn't seem like it. It sure doesn't seem like it. And um, so, yeah, d- 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 does the theology in the text matter that God is a creator? He didn't name the son. You know, he creates the son on day four. Is, is it polemical? Is it revelational? Yeah, absolutely. It's also true. It's also true that that theology is based on something real and historical that happened. Um, the details do give us information about history. It's not science. And this is, this is the other big thing. It's not, we're not talking about science here. Okay. We have no reason to think that the biblical writers had anything like what we have of modern knowledge of science. But in hundreds of years from now, they're going to look back at us and think those people were dummies. They were idiots, right? There's, there's that cultural bias going on that we have to be aware of. Again, we're not talking about science. We're talking about history. We're talking about history. Now, the history as recorded in the Bible will have implications for science into the future, um, in our present day and into the future and in the past. I mean, it will. Um, if a lot of what the Bible talks about historically is true, then it will have implications in some areas for modern science. But again, it's history that's being reported. It's not science. It's to say that Genesis 1 informs something about the nature of the natural world as we understand it today is not to say that the writer was concerned with biology. Okay, that is a red herring. Uh, it's a straw man. It's, it's all the things, okay? It, it, it's just not truthful. It's not how creationists in particular, and again, I'm just using this as an example um, because it's you know a passion topic of mine, but it, it, it's not faithful to how a creationist would look and understand that passage. We don't believe it's a science textbook. We believe it's reporting accurately about history, and if that has implications for science, then we must follow where that evidence leads. Okay, that's all for this episode of the Bible Nerd Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Again, I'll just remind you, don't forget, I'm publishing every couple of weeks out there on the Substack, so biblenerdsociety.substack.com. Go ahead and get signed up to check out all the great stuff that's happening over there. Going really in-depth on some topics. I think the one I just published on Tuesday was like 5,000 words. So uh, it's like little you know, like miniature books I'm publishing over there. So uh, definitely go check it out. We explore the topic of inerrancy in depth. And um, I think it's going to be something that will give you some helpful things to think about as you uh, try to be a more faithful Bible nerd. All right, God bless. You guys take care. Can't wait to see you in the next episode.